This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Today we're gearing up for the Battle of Hastings, or at least its reenactments next month by 500 history enthusiasts on the very land where one of the biggest turning points in English history took place. Of course, many of us know the key points of the story, including that unforgettable date, 1066. But what was the build-up to this brutal Game of Thrones? Who had the strongest claim to be king? How did William win? And did Harold really die from an arrow to the eye? Joining us to answer all those questions and more are our two guests. Hello, I'm Dr Catherine Bedford and I'm Curator of Collections and Interiors for the South East of English Heritage. Hi, I'm Roy Porter. I'm the Senior Properties Curator for English Heritage in the southeast of England. I'll throw this out to whoever wants to take it. So we'll, we'll go back to the years before 1066. What are the circumstances that set up this conflict between a foreigner, William of Normandy, and Harold for the English throne? The previous king, Edward the Confessor, died at the start of 1066. He died without an immediate heir there were a number of different people who thought that they should be king and Harold and William were two of those, the two that emerged as the primary combatants for the throne. And what was William's claim to the throne? Well, partly in the fact that he was a cousin of Edward the Confessor. So Edward's mother, Emma, was the daughter of William's great-grandfather, Richard, Duke of Normandy. And blood links with the English royal family were important, but more significantly, William claimed that Edward had promised him the throne, effectively making him his heir. And according to Norman sources, this has occurred back around 1051, at a time when we know that Edward was attempting to sort of shrug off the influence of the major English family in the kingdom, the Godwins. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, William visited England in 1051. And this may have been the occasion when Edward promised the throne to William, or at least William thought that Edward promised the throne to him. And again, according to Norman sources, Harold had been sent to Normandy shortly before 1066 by Edward to swear loyalty to William as his prospective king. And so the, the Norman argument was basically that William was the rightful king by virtue of the promise made by Edward, and that Harold was a usurper and an oathbreaker. Just going back to that point you did make uh, from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, this thought in William's mind that in 1051 he was offered the future empty throne. This wasn't written down, was it? No, it wasn't. And this is one of the really interesting things about 1066 for historians, is that the, you know, the various arguments about the claims to the throne aren't made until after the event. You know, so the Norman claim to the throne, William's claim to the throne, doesn't emerge explicitly in Norman sources until after the Battle of Hastings. Similarly for Harold as well. What we know about what possibly happened at the death of Edward the Confessor and how Harold may or may not have been offered the throne, that emerges in sources after the event again. So retrospective claims, really, which by that point, it, the damage is done in a way. Having a written promise would have actually helped, wouldn't it? It would certainly make th things a lot easier for historians than be <laughs> arguing uh, quite as much over what um, happened in 1066. And perhaps if there had been a written promise, then there would have been an opportunity for the 
people of England to have thought about what was being offered and to have made representation about it. So we've explained that there was a, a little bit of a conflict before any conflict has even started regarding William's claim to the throne. What about Harold's claim to the throne? Can you tell us more about that, Catherine? Well, similarly, Harold's claim was based on the fact that he said that Edward had named him as his heir. And it happens much later. It happens right at the start of 1066 at the point of Edward's death. According to the Vita, the life of Edward that was written in the aftermath of the Battle of Hastings, Edward the Confessor had gone into a coma right at the end of 1065, but revived briefly just long enough to name Harold as his successor. In addition to that, there was a council of English nobles whose position was to advise the king, and they also had a role, though at this stage it's a little uncertain exactly what that role was, but a role within the appointment of kings, in that technically they were the people who voted for who the next king would be, and they voted for Harold. So Harold's claim comes not from a direct family connection to Edward the Confessor, but because he is saying that he has been elected to this position by the nobles of England, and he was chosen for that position also by the previous king. And this claim appears in the Bayeux Tapestry as well. It's um, there's sort of a depiction of Edward pointing at a man that is believed to have been Harold early on in the tapestry. Right. Okay. We'll talk about the tapestry a little bit later as one of those other sources for historians. So the key question after looking at the two different claims, who, in your view, had the best claim? Roy, if you want to start us off. The first thing to say, obviously, is that this is a very contested issue, (laughs) that the whole reason the events of 1066 happen is because people have claims which arguably are very, very strong. And in fact, the irony of this situation is that there is a third person we haven't mentioned called Edgar Aethling, who is a nephew of Edward the Confessor, who is around in England at this time, who arguably has a stronger claim than either Harold or William, but he's only 13 years old in 1066. Ah. So he's, you know, he's unlikely to be chosen by the Council of Nobles, as Catherine has mentioned, as being the sort of person you want to have leading the country. One thing to say is that, you know, in terms of English tradition, it would have been very unusual and probably impossible for an English king to appoint a successor in the way that William claimed happened. We've heard how there was an elective part to the monarchy and that the Witan, the Council of Nobles, would have been responsible for making the final decision. It is possible, though, that the previous king could designate an heir by essentially saying that he favoured a particular person. And although this will sound like a bit of a fudge, personally, I I can imagine a situation where in 1051, Edward expressed a hope or preference that William, his cousin, who he had known in Normandy, might follow him as king, and that this was misconstrued by the Normans as a solemn promise. But in Westminster, at the start of 1066, the leading men of the kingdom who were there present, supported the claim of Harold as the most powerful man in the kingdom to be the person who should be the next king. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's a real Game of Thrones sort of scenario, isn't it, really? It's really fascinating in this period because there isn't this direct primogenitor that we have today. We sort of think of his inheritance as there being a set of rules that everyone knows in advance who the heir is going to be. They're very much still working that out. So does the fact that you are the closest male relative matter 
given your age, given your legitimacy. I mean, we haven't talked about the fact that William himself was illegitimate. Only a couple of generations later, he would have been automatically excluded simply because he wasn't the legitimate relative. How legitimate then was he in terms of blood at this stage? His parents weren't married. So he was actually known as William the Bastard rather than William the Conqueror to start with. Helps with the warrior image though, doesn't it? Or what about your opinion on this, Catherine? Do you think uh, out of the two, Harold maybe had the advantage? What's your view? Well, I'm also slightly going to maybe go with the fudge answer in that because there aren't any strict hard and fast rules in this period, I think that actually what it comes down to is Harold is the one who had been crowned. He had been conferred the kingship in a religious ceremony and he was king. That makes sense. So before we talk about the Battle of Hastings itself, it's worth saying that Harold had already fought off competition for the throne from Harald Hadrada, that's H-A-R-A-L-D, of Norway. And this was at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. His brother, his own brother, Harold's brother, was involved in this. So he was fighting his own blood in order to retain his own throne. That's an important point, isn't it, as we get to the Battle of Hastings itself? Yeah, it is. Hardrada was king of Norway, and he was a descendant of King Canute, the great Danish king of England in the first half of the 11th century. That was the basis of his claim. Tostig was Harold's younger brother, and in the year previously, 1065, there had been an almighty falling out when Harold had been instrumental in deposing Tostig as Earl of Northumbria. So... Basically, Tostig refused to accept this. He was outlawed and exiled. He goes away, he seems to go to Norway, where he persuades Harold Hardrada, who's a noted military leader, that he should invade England and make good this slightly odd claim that he doesn't appear to have had any really paid any previous attention to, the fact that he might have a claim to the throne of England. And what happens is that when Hardrada and Tostig land the north of England, there is a battle, Battle of Fulford, which they win. And then King Harold, our King Harold, marches north to fight the invading forces of Hardrada, and he wins a notable battle at Stamford Bridge, near York. So that's the immediate context as far as Harold's concerned. He's spent the summer on the south coast waiting for an anticipated invasion from Normandy. He's reached a point where his provisions have run out at the end of the summer. It's, he's reached September, and then he receives this calamitous news, this invasion's occurring in the north of the country. He marches to the north of the country, probably thinking that the threat from Normandy has ended because we're now approaching the autumn. The campaigning season has probably come to an end. He wins this notable victory in York. And it's whilst he's up there after the Battle of Stamford Bridge that he receives news that William has landed in Sussex at Pevensey. Yes. And in some respects, before we just sort of get to the Battle of Hastings itself, we've got four claims to this throne, haven't we? Yeah. Harold William the nephew, and also Harold Hadrada of Norway. So there's a lot of battles on many fronts, in a way, politically, uh, before the Battle of Hastings even starts. So in some respects, it's one of those battles that could have a load of prequels, if you know what I mean. Yes, it's very much in the middle of a process. It's not the beginning and it's not really the end either, but it's Hmm. probably the single key moment within that process. So this key point now about Harold having fought Harald Hadrada of Norway and his own brother at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, that's an important factor 
regarding the invasion which has just effectively happened now at Pevensey on the south coast because I'm presuming Harold and his men are tired and surprised by this point. Yeah, and therefore at a distinct disadvantage, aren't they? They're, they're in the north of England. The king has received news that you know his kingdom has been invaded. He has to make his way to the south of the country in order to do something about this. And so his immediate response, it seems, is to set off towards London. And he makes remarkable progress. I mean, he, he makes the journey very quickly, which suggests, you know, really a, a driven march back. Certainly, you know, I say a march, but Harold, of course, and, and his leading men will be on horseback going back to London. And then you have a slight wait in London, and then Harold continues down into Sussex to confront the invading forces of William and Normandy. So we've got, obviously, Harold and William as the key combatants now. Why were they so keen to fight a battle? Well, there are different reasons for both of them. If you imagine you're William, you've landed in Sussex at the end of the, well, in the early autumn, effectively, right at the end of September. You're in a, a foreign land. You can expect to be opposed by the king at some point. More importantly, you've brought provisions over with you. You're taking provisions from the land as you go. But ultimately, unless you can bring things to a head fairly quickly, you're going to be facing a winter of uncertainty. So from William's point of view, actually forcing a battle makes perfect sense. I mean, Mm. people don't like fighting battles in the Middle Ages, generally speaking, because it's a bit of a throw of the dice, isn't it? You know, if fate goes against you and you're unlucky on the day, potentially you've had it. But that's the throw of the dice William is William to make in this situation. For Harold... He doesn't have to fight a battle straight away. In a sense, it's in his interest to hold back, to let William's provisions run down, to allow the morale of William's army perhaps to decline. But two things stand against that. First of all, William is marauding the lands in Sussex. He's undermining Harold's kingship, his lordship. Harold, as a lord and king, is expected to protect his people. And Mm. secondly... I think we have to play a bit of amateur psychology here. Harold is a seasoned veteran of war. He's a successful general. He's just won a notable victory over Harold Hardrada and Tostig by surprising them in battle. And perhaps Harold thinks that he can do the same again. He can rush down into Sussex, surprise William, force the battle on William, and therefore win another famous victory. Or just go down there and play heavy defence and hope that William and his men are tired and whatever other reason. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a very interesting point. The, the sources are slightly ambiguous on the, in this in as much that you know, a lot of the English sources suggest that Harold wasn't ready to fight the battle when he did. And that's one of the explanations for why he ultimately lost it. And it could be, you could argue, that perhaps that's what he, was, he was going into Sussex to keep William's army contained Mm. within the the Hastings Peninsula, but didn't intend to fight a battle. Given what he's just done in in Yorkshire, my money is on him being impetuous and wishing to fight. And the majority of later sources choose to portray Harold in that way, rejecting the advice of his family that he should wait, for example, and choosing to confront William as soon as possible. But I suppose as well, it's very difficult to not do anything if you've already got a foreign contender for your throne already on your land. In some respects, the match has started. 
everything else that happens after that is inevitable. Yeah, well, I mean, as I say, what William is doing is he, he's actively undermining mm. Harold's position as king. And in fact, the land in Sussex, where William is, you know, a lot of that land had been traditionally associated with the Godwin. Some of it was actually owned by the Godwin family. It's sort of Harold's ancestral land, if you like. And so personally, there, there, there's a, the reason why Harold will want to rid himself and his people of this invading force as quickly as possible. It's a bit of an insult, isn't it? Someone coming in onto your right, land absolutely. and you have I mean, to defend more it. More than an insult, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, and he, he is a threat. He's a threat to Harold. I mean, one of the things which is interesting is that you know, some of the sources imply that Harold's support within England you know, wasn't universal. Now, is that another reason why Harold wants to get rid of William as quickly as possible? You know, in order to buttress his position. Very interesting. So we've kind of outlined then how the sides might be matched and the various motivations for how they're going to perform in battle. William's forces, do you think they were better prepared for battle in in light of what we discussed, Catherine? They've certainly had more time to prepare and they have been able to set up a defensive position from which they're raiding the countryside. But I don't think we should necessarily just assume that Harold's forces are unprepared. They've had this very fast march down to London, but they did, they did take longer after that in the move into Sussex. So they've had time to kind of recuperate from that immediate rush. And the fact that the battle, I mean, we're going to talk about this later, but the fact that the battle lasted as long as it did does suggest that these people weren't completely exhausted at that point. However, I think that there's definitely an element that William was fighting with the force that he had planned to fight with. He had the people that he'd sort of been preparing in Normandy and he brought over with the expectation that this was his invading force. Harold, on the other hand, he had been waiting on the south coast with a particular force, but at this point he doesn't have that anymore. He had had a fleet that he was expecting to be able to use to stop William getting as far as England. He had had potentially more archers than were eventually actually at the battle because it would take much longer for them to travel because they weren't necessarily on horseback. So we can't necessarily assume that Although the forces that Harold was fighting with may have been reasonably well-rested themselves, they weren't necessarily the force that Harold would have wanted to have in that moment. I see. So there's arguments really for both sides, really, as to who was better prepared. Harold is definitely in a less good position than William is. Do you agree with that, Roy? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think Catherine hit the nail on the head when she said that William is effectively fighting with the forces he expected to fight with. You know, his blood may not be up in the same way that the, the forces of Harold will be after Stamford Bridge. But, you know, he hasn't taken any casualties, as far as we're aware. He's in a position where the full strength of his forces effectively can be brought to bear on the day of the battle. Whereas for Harold, his forces, as full of enthusiasm as they might be, some of them will be tired if they've been with him in the north. And not, by no means will all, all of them have been with him in the north, of course. That's another thing to bear in mind. But for those who have been, some of them will be tired. There would have been casualties along the way. And so I think the balance of favour is in William's side at the moment before the battle begins. Okay. before we get into the day of battle itself, just talk briefly about historical sources. We mentioned the uh, Bayer Tapestry. That's a 68 metre long piece of embroidery depicting the battle. When was that made? Sometime in the 1070s, sort of approximately within a decade of the events that it's the, the, the battle that it's depicting. There's been a lot of argument about as to who commissioned it, but the current theory is that it was William's brother, Odo of Bayeux, 
and that therefore it may have been associated with the completion of the cathedral there in 1077. Right. Other sources of battle that historians can refer to? What are there? There are lots, actually. I mean, surprisingly lots, relatively speaking, you know, compared to a lot of medieval battles. And of course, the difficulty is that they say different things, and so you have to try and reconcile them. And that's one of the, the joys of studying this particular event. It's a cliche to say, isn't it, that history is written by the winners, and it is fair to say that all our very early descriptions of the Battle of Hastings come from Norman or French sources. We don't have an English description of the battle, really, until the early 12th century. Oh, and that's a very late afterwards. It's a lot later. And the way in which the events are described by the different nationalities involved, unsurprisingly, is different as well. So you have some sources which are very, very pro-William. So one of our early sources is a, effectively a biography of William written by William Repartier. And we you know, talk about hero worship. That life of William is full of hero worship. Whereas for an English source such as John of Worcester, writing in the early 12th century, he's far more sympathetic to King Harold. It's almost as if the English voices were silenced for a generation by the catastrophe of the battle. Mm. It takes a generation for them to be able to start talking about it, or at least start writing about it, at least. Yes. Okay, let's look more closely at the day of battle, the 14th of October, 1066. Do we know what time the armies first saw each other? Well, William Pratier tells us that the battle begins at the third hour. Now, given the battle takes place on the 14th of October, the third hour after dawn is likely to be around nine o'clock in the morning. And how many men would have been on each side? Ah, now that <laughs> is one of the, the, the intriguing questions which... Um, you know, has uh, bedeviled historical accounts of the Battle of Hastings for at least the last 150 years. The <laughs> honest answer is we don't know. What we can really do is draw inferences from what we know about later battles and, and the size of the population, the resources available to the people concerned. Perhaps the simplest answer to your question is to say that the general consensus amongst scholars is that it's likely there would have been around 6,000 to 8,000 people on each side in the battle. And we should also say as well at this point that it's always been called the Battle of Hastings, but it's not actually that near Hastings really, is it? It's more inland. How far from Hastings was this battle? The site of the battle is about seven miles north of Hastings. And it seems that the location was fairly carefully chosen in as much that the, the road out of the Hastings Peninsula towards London passes through the site of the battle. And so effectively what Harold's doing is controlling that access from the Hastings Peninsula. And he's chosen a point where he can enjoy the high ground. There's a, there's a point where the road dips down off the ridge, which runs north from Hastings, and then rises again. And as it rises again, we would have had Harold at the top of the rise. So he's got a commanding position, a strategically defensive position to stop any advance by William's forces. Just regarding the, the, the... Oh, sorry, Catherine, you were going to, you were going to say? On the, on the subject of how many men there were on each side, this is an, another case where the sources are slightly unhelpful, but they give us a glimpse into the mentality of the people writing these chronicles and various different versions of the battle, in that William's army tends to have very exaggerated numbers, sort of 14,000 up to 150,000. But <laughs> Harold's army tends to be vastly, vastly exaggerated. 
So these Norman sources are sort of saying that William's got this fantastic army, but they're then saying that he's fighting these unimaginably large numbers of people, so 400,000 people on the English side, just to make it clear how big that that victory was. They're aggrandizing his victory through the numbers of soldiers that they're depicting as being there. But whatever... Sorry, Charles, that's really interesting because our English sources say the opposite. Yeah. So the, Eng the English sources say that Harold's army is, uh, is effectively outnumbered. I think it's John of Worcester who says that the English were lined up in so close a formation that they couldn't all line up properly. So some of them left the battlefield and left Harold's forces depleted. Others say that Harold didn't have time to actually line up his forces before the battle. So it was at a disadvantage for that reason. So you can see both sides of the battle in terms of the history of it coming up with competing accounts of, of what happened on the day for the Normans, as Catherine said, they have this great victory because they defeated a huge English army. Whereas for the later English commentators, they're justifying why the English lost on the day. And it's because Harold's army wasn't all that big. He didn't have an opportunity to deploy all of his forces. They were fighting at a disadvantage. Yeah, that's really interesting. But I think the thing that we can all agree on is that it's in vast contrast to the 500 reenactors taking part in, in this year's English heritage reenactment at battle, isn't it? Absolutely. The largest number of reenactors we've ever had is 3,000, so we're not getting anywhere close. Wow, amazing. And what about the weapons that each side would have had? There will be a lot of weapons that were in common on both sides. They both made use of shields, they both used swords, they both used um, sort of spears and lances. But in terms of defining weapons for both sides, the English had their hand axes. They could be used in one hand or two hands, but they were incredibly powerful weapons that you could decapitate a, a man with a single blow. And on the other side, you've got the Normans who are making extensive use of bows, in particular early crossbows, and also cavalry forces. Mm. Uh, they're using horses in a way that the English aren't, really. Were the English at all on horseback then? They tended to travel to battle on horses rather than fighting with the horses. They were very, very strong on infantry and particularly their shield wall. It's a much more defensive style of fighting, one in which you set up a position and it's incredibly difficult for an attacking army to get through that shield wall. Whereas the weapons that are being used by the Norman side are much more weapons for attack. The archers and the cavalry are much more mobile means of warfare. Did Harold's men have archery skills as well or equipment? There were some archers used by the English side, but they seem to have had far fewer archers than the French. Right. So I'm getting a sense now, I think, and I think listeners will be as well, of the military tactics being employed by the Normans and why they were victorious in the end, because they, they, they were superior and just more dynamic. Well, they're very well, dynamic, but... That shield wall. Don't underestimate the strength of that shield wall. Okay. What do you think, Roy? I agree entirely with what Catherine's just said. I mean, there's a difference in the way in which both sides want to fight the battle. So for Harold, he's got a defensive position. He employs this shield wall, what other Saxon poems refer to as a war hedge. They, they lock their shields together. They can fire missiles from behind the shields. They can sort you from the field wall to a slight degree. But effectively, it's a fixed position. And you know, a lot of the Norman sources talk about the surprise they have at seeing the Saxons rooted to the ground. They're going to hold this position. William's army is far more mobile, and they're trying to poke their way through this shield wall around the edges of it. 
Now, if you put yourselves in the minds of the English and King Harold, all they have to do is hold the line, keep their position, and potentially they're going to win the day. They can use this shield wall to soak up the attacks from William's army. And provided it holds, and it's incredibly difficult to break something like this, they have a really great opportunity to effectively cause damage to William's army by counter-attacking if the opportunity comes, by effectively staying in the line. And as Catherine described, using these you know, hideous great battle axes to cause all sorts of harm to the people who are attacking them. And I think that for that reason, we'd be wrong to think that William's army is superior. I, mean, I think we, we often think that because of the fact they employ cavalry. But you know, it's, it's, in a sense, it's a clash between two slightly different military cultures. And in terms of what was happening on the day, Harold's position isn't inherently inferior to William's in that regard. There is a sense and a strategy to what he's doing. I like the fact that we're having a battle within a battle about the merits of these um, military tactics and you know the arguments pro and con, really. I think that's really interesting. Let's move on to the phases of the battle then, because I understand there are a few. This counterattack thing that you mentioned is going to be a key one, I know. So if you had to describe in general terms the phases of the battle, how would you describe it? We're, we're at nine o'clock at the, at the time that the armies see each other. So what happens next? Well, we're told by William of Poitiers, the battle begins with the great sound of trumpets. And you know, William's army consists of skirmishing troops, archers. He has heavy infantry. He has cavalry. What we presume happened during the day is that you have moments where various units of these soldiers go forward to confront the English line. And the general picture which emerges from the descriptions of the battle is that it's incredibly hard fought, that it lasts a long time, but that during the battle, there are pivotal moments, moments where you know, William loses his horse, for example. Um, there's a, a moment where William is feared to have died and has to raise his helmet. This is actually shown on the tapestry where he raises his helmet to display himself to his soldiers. But one of the key things which happens in these waves of attack, and, it, and I think we have to imagine waves of attack. Can't imagine a battle lasting as long as it seems to have done as being one continuous confrontation. You know, people get tired, horses get tired, horses have to be fed and watered. I think there could be waves of attack during the day. What happens, what the, what the sources all seem to agree on is that at one point in the battle there is a retreat on William's side that the the Bretons his Breton allies break as they break and retreat away from the English line that the English people observing this break the shield wall and run down the hill behind them now some of the sources describe this as an event where the English gained the upper hand for a short time others suggest that very quickly the tables were turned. But what appears to have happened, generally speaking, is that this was observed as an event and that it was decided that in order to entice the English line to break, that there would be a series of feigned retreats. Now, to what extent this was really possible, given the way in which armies trained in those days, we're not entirely sure. But certainly this is what, what, what comes across in the, the early sources for the battle, that William's army managed to organize these feigned retreats and that the English line broke, and that, that resulted in the weakness, a critical weakness in the shield wall we've been describing. And it's after that, probably, that King Harold is killed. Now, I say probably, because one of our earliest sources for the battle, William Azumiege, 
actually says that Harold was killed right at the start of the battle. He's the only person to say that. It sort of ruins the poetry hmm. of the Battle of Hastings to think that that might be the case. But I do put it out there as a possibility. Very interesting. Catherine, what's your interpretation of the phases of the battle? Would you largely agree with Roy on these points? Absolutely. You've kind of got a starting position where things are going the way the English had expected. They're repelling these attacks using their shield wall. And then, as Roy said, initially through an accident and then deliberately, the Normans begin to be able to use these waves of attack and retreat to entice the English down. And ultimately, it is Harold's death that makes the big difference. And the the shield wall and the English side start to lose morale and start to break up. Of course. Now, regarding this death of Harold, the the bio tapestry does show him dying from an arrow to the eye. Is this accurate? There's kind of two things there. One, whether or not the bio tapestry does show him dying from an arrow to the eye, and then two, whether he did die in that way. Because actually, early 18th century images of the bio tapestry suggest that the fact that it's an arrow that appears is actually part of 19th century reconstruction work that was done on the tapestry. It may not initially have been an arrow. Oh, really? And there's also a whole debate as to which of two figures is supposed to represent Harold, whether it's this figure with the arrow in the eye or whether it's another figure being trampled under a horse and attacked with a sword. And these two possible means of death are reflected in the source material as well. So potentially someone's gone in with a needle and thread in the 19th century and um, changed the biotapestry. Absolutely. There was a a whole load of conservation work done on the tapestry in the 19th century, and it can be very difficult to establish exactly what happened then as part of that and what's original. And we are fortunate to have some very early sketches from the 18th century that allow us to make some comparisons before and after. So there was always something in that position in the tapestry, but it doesn't appear to have been obviously an arrow. It didn't have fletchings. Wow, that's remarkable. So if it was there originally, what sort of weapon might it have been? Well, there have been various suggestions. I said this person may have been attempting to throw something or whether it's something else that's going into his eye, but not necessarily a clear-cut thing that even if you accept that this figure in the Bayeux Tapestry is Harold, that what was shown is that this figure is dying from an arrow in the eye. The more we get into this podcast, um, the more the conflict throws up other conflicts, doesn't it? Um, One of the joys of having all these sources is, as Roy said earlier, you've got so much contradiction between the sources. (laughs) And as I said earlier, it's almost like a battle within a battle. There's so many little mini battles going on as each idea does battle with itself. That's right. I mean, I, I think one source we ought to pay particular attention to, though, which we haven't mentioned yet, is a poem called the, the, the Carmen, the Song of the Battle of Hastings, written by Guy or Guy, Bishop of Amiens. And we think it's incredibly early. We think it's written around 1068. It's probably our earliest source for the Battle of Hastings. And you know, I'm sorry to say that there's no reference to an arrow in Harold's eye there at all. And you know, at the risk of being slightly gory about this, Harold's death is described in some detail. He's described as being killed by William and three other knights who ride forward at, towards the end of the battle, break, you know, through the remains of the English line and hack Harold to pieces. And it's, it's described in quite graphic terms in this poem. And you know, when you look at the, the way the tapestry is depicting, the way Catherine's just described, this figure falling down to the right of the famous figure, supposedly the arrow in his eye, that better suits the description of what happens in the Carmen. 
that King Harold ends up with his head cut off, his chest ripped open, part of his leg hacked off. It really is a very horrible business. But I think we ought to put that out there, really, that, you know, our earliest source describes something quite horrible happening to Harold. And what appears to happen, again, this is really fascinating in terms of the way the story develops, is that other early Norman sources just don't mention Harold's death. William of Poitiers doesn't tell us how he died, really. William of Jumiers doesn't tell us how he died, just tells us when he died. And the whole notion of an arrow in the eye is a marvellous way of saying effectively that Harold's death was the result of God's judgment. And this brings us back to the question you posed at the beginning of our session today, Charles. Who had the better claim to the throne? Well, if you're William, rather than saying you've just murdered an anointed king on the battlefield, how much better to say that God directed an arrow into the eye of King Harold? And by the early 12th century, what the sources are trying to do is to reconcile these different traditions. It's fascinating. By the time you get to Henry of Huntingdon writing in the 1120s, he has his cake and eats it. He says that Harold was struck in the eye by an arrow, but it didn't kill him. He fell down and then he was cut down by William's forces. So there is an, sort of an emerging tradition here. But I do think the fact that an arrow in the eye is, is effectively an anonymous way of killing a Harold and basically saying this is the judgment of God which you know, allows William to be in the best possible light rather than a, you know, a bloodthirsty king killer. Is it possible to say that the biotapestry as it is, as we see it today, representative of that action of Harold being struck in the eye and then falling off his horse and then, as historians have described, being hacked to pieces? Do you think that it's possible to view the tapestry as, as that is happening, almost like a, a cartoon strip? It's possible in that there are some holes in the fabric on the fallen figure that suggest there might have been something going into that figure's eye at some point in the past but again that doesn't show up in the earlier drawings so if it did happen it may well be that that was a 19th century edition that has then since been removed. Okay and regarding Harold's body then we've talked about how the historians have described it in various different ways is there any consensus about what happened to him after he died regardless of how he was potentially dismembered where's he buried for example? No there's no consensus. Okay does anyone say where he's buried? There are a few different accounts his body was identified probably the day after though exactly how and by who is not necessarily certain and there have been various versions of what happens after that Uh, according to one version his mother offered William the weight of her son's body in gold but she was turned down and she wasn't allowed to bury him herself and William ordered that Harold's body be thrown into the sea but whether that or not that happened there's another story that says he was buried at the top of a cliff Waltham Abbey claims to have his tomb there and then there's another later legend that claims he never died at all and went on to do a whole load of other things before becoming a hermit. So there really isn't a consensus. Well, those are all fascinating. Uh, Assuming he did die then, which seems to be the the bulk of the accounts, his wife, his queen, how did she react to the news? Well, when it comes to Harold's wife, there's a certain amount of confusion that tends to automatically occur because there are two women who can be considered to be his wife, both of whom under English spelling and pronunciation, are called Edith. The first of those is Edith the Fair or Edith Swanneck, who was a common law wife. There's a certain amount of debate as to whether she was an official wife, whether it was a marriage that would be canonically accepted. But a lot of stories 
show her as being the person who identified Harold's body in the aftermath of the battle, that it was secret signs on his body that only she knew that allowed him to be identified. But actually, his more official wife, the one that is absolutely definitely canonically accepted, who he'd only married a very short time earlier, we know wasn't in a battle at that time. She appears to have been in London because in the aftermath of the battle, her brothers came and, and took her away to a place of safety. I see. Don't really know what happened to either of them after that. They just disappear from the record. I suppose the presence of a weeping wife uh, finding the husband's dead body and identifying him and almost confirming the news would have been perfect material for William to say, yep, it's over. Wouldn't you say, Roy? It's interesting that William's response at the end of the battle to Harold's death, again, the way which we're told about that changes over time. So, um, as, as Catherine said, you know, the, 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 the earliest accounts talk about William, uh, Harold's mother asking for the body of her son and offering the weight of the body in gold, and uh, William absolutely refusing to give the body up. By the next generation of writers, the early 12th century, William is appearing far more chivalrous. And so when he's asked a question by uh, Harold's mother, he gives the body up. And then you have this, other, this later tradition of Edith Swanneck recognising the body on the battlefield. Now, that, that may well have been an oral tradition associated with that, but that doesn't emerge as a written source until later in the 12th century in the, the, the Chronicle of uh, Waltham Abbey, who claim, of course, that you know, Harold's body ends up there, that, that that's where he was buried. So I'm afraid that William's response and position vis-a-vis the corpse of King Harold is, again, something which changes over time as far as the sources are concerned. And so you, you, we have to be very careful with trying to say you know, what happened on the day. You know, the Battle of Hastings is brilliant for this. You know, as I said earlier, there are lots and lots of sources for the Battle of Hastings. It means we know lots and lots about the battle, but we know very, very little with any real certainty. And that's the paradox of the Battle of Hastings. Yes. OK, well, what about the thousands or tens of thousands of dead were they buried where they fell or were they carted off to a mass grave by the victors? How did it work? Do we have any clue? Well, we can only go by what's described at the time. And again, the traditions develop over time. So the, the earliest sources tell us that William arranged for the bodies of his soldiers to be collected and to be buried. The bodies of his English foes, we're told, were left on the battlefield to be picked apart by carrion but again go forward 50 or 60 years and we're told that william graciously allows the english to bury their dead as well so you know you have to try to reconcile the, the, these two very different accounts is quite difficult I, mean, I think one thing's for certain the dead were likely to have been stripped of anything of value any armor any weapons for example and on the basis of our earliest information, we can at least say that it's very likely that William's forces were collected together, the dead were collected together and buried in a mass grave of some type. Hmm. If there was a mass grave then, have archaeologists found it? No. <laughs> ah, right. <laughs> and therein lies a tale. It's one of the intriguing issues about the Battle of Hastings is the fact that to date, no real archaeological evidence for the Battle of Hastings has been encountered. There have been odd pieces of, of weaponry discovered. So there was an axe head found at the east end of Battle Town, 
for example. But we can't actually say that this is an axe head which was definitely used in the Battle of Hastings. All we can say is it's the sort of axe which would have been used in the 11th century. And this has given rise to the suggestion that perhaps we don't really know whether the Battle of Hastings took place because we can't fix it with any archaeological evidence. And until we can find that archaeological evidence, we can't be certain that we know where the battle occurred. And one of the things you know, I think everybody would like to find would be a mass grave of some kind of grave pit because it would help pinpoint where the battle happened. In the absence of archaeological evidence, we have to rely on historical evidence and the circumstances of the founding of Battle Abbey as well. And the historical evidence is quite clear that there was a tradition, at least, that Battle Abbey was founded on the site of the Battle of Hastings. And one of the earliest references to that comes in a version of the the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, where there is an obituary of King William, and it says that on the on the very spot where God granted him victory over the English, he caused a great abbey to be founded and filled it with monks and endowed it with riches, something like that. And really that, in, in terms of historical terms, is probably the, the earliest source we have for the association of the abbey with the battle. And that is then followed by other sources in the early 12th century. And then eventually you get this tradition that the high altar of Battle Abbey was built on the spot where Harold's body was found after the battle, which could make sense because the high altar of Battle Abbey is on the top of the hill of the traditional battlefield. So if you look at all the sources, that, that suggests that's where Harold raised his standard. If you've got the bare tapestry and you read descriptions of the battle, Harold seems to have died close to his standard. So it could make perfect sense, this tradition. But that's all we can say it is. It is a tradition, a historically verified tradition, in the sense that people were saying that within a generation of the Battle of Hastings. But what we can't offer you is any archaeological evidence for the battle itself. Partly, it has to be said, if it is on the site of the, of the Abbey, and I think there are good reasons to think it is, there's first of all been little major archaeological investigation on that site but secondly and probably far more importantly the landscape has changed a great deal and so that hillside we were describing has been scarped and filled and leveled in places in order to allow the construction of a great medieval abbey on mm. top of it and then the, the landscape has been further changed and one thing I, I i would desperately drive home to everybody today is that when visitors go to Battle Abbey, they walk through the Abbey ruins, they look over the open ground to the south. Don't for one moment think that that open ground to the south of the lovely grassland is the battlefield. The battlefield at battle would have ranged across the landscape. And as soon as you enter Battle Town, you're effectively on the battlefield. When you're in the Abbey, in the Abbey ruins, you're on the site of the focus of the battle. And so you have to reimagine yourself into the landscape of 1066. And it has changed, undoubtedly changed a very great deal over the last 955 years. Yes, absolutely. But regarding the motivations for William putting his abbey there, I believe this was in penance. He's doing penance for all the bloodshed in his conquest. And it's in part as a result of a papal requirement to do so. So he's come over as a conqueror, but he, he's created a new image for himself despite being a conqueror. He's tried to soften that conqueror image. Well, he would claim that he wasn't a conqueror, that he is claiming what was his by right. But it's interesting that we remember him as the conqueror. 
Yeah, I mean, whether or not you agree with what he was trying, the message he was trying to get across is another thing. But I mean, he is coming to England in his mind to claim what is his right. He is not coming to invade or conquer a separate country. We'll get on to our concluding points uh, very shortly. But just to wrap up the battle itself, how long did it last in total? Well, it's starting, as Roy said earlier, sort of just after dawn, so about nine o'clock. And we know that it ended around dusk. And given when it took place, we know that sunset on that day was shortly before five o'clock. So the battlefield would have been pretty much dark by shortly before six o'clock. So we're talking nine hours approximately for the battle. We talked about uh, the tactics, obviously. It was finely balanced, as as I can tell, because obviously it went on quite a long time. But where would you say Harold went wrong, tactically? Was it the fact that he was so defensive with the shield wall situation? Well, the thing to remember about the shield wall is you can turn the shield wall into something which is far more aggressive. The English are used to fighting aggressive wars and they simply stand still and do nothing, so to speak. And, and, and Harold is a, a seasoned general. What went wrong for him on the day, your view on that would depend as to, on whether or not you think he had insufficient forces around him, that people left him on the battlefield, that he, he, he wasn't supporting the way that he should have been, perhaps. But I think, you know, if you want my personal point of view, this is very much a personal point of view, and I think this is one of the glories of the Battle of Hastings. We're all allowed to have one, given <laughs> the way the sources play out. My personal point of view is that probably what happened is that during the attrition of the day, the shield wall broke. And the shield wall may well have broken in part because of the enthusiasm of those who were able to rush down the hill and to follow up what they thought was a genuine retreat on the part of William's army. And that once the line started to break in that way, it was easy to then split the English line into into separate groups. Once that continuous line was broken, I think that the death knell was sounded, really. But I think the other thing which, and I, I go with the poetry of the sources here, I think that Harold's death probably happened towards the end of the day. And that given that, you know, we know that his brothers who were fighting with him had already died by this point, with the death of the king, I imagine that the resolve and the morale of the remaining English was broken. And that's when resilience and defence turned into flight. And when you have these descriptions of the English then rushing northwards to the safety of the Wilden Forest, and being cut down as they retreated. And when you look at the Bear Tapestry, the very last images of the Bear Tapestry, as it survives, appear to be depicting this sort of thing happening. Absolutely. I would second that. The, the big moment in Harold's defeat essentially is Harold's own death. If he hadn't died and had been able to retreat in an, in an orderly manner, we wouldn't be thinking of the Battle of Hastings in this way. It's the fact that he died and therefore it was a complete rout that makes it that decisive. We've talked then about the battle itself, how it raged for hours and hours up until dusk. Victory was declared. William was the winner. Harold was slain and dead. And the Game of Thrones was over. But obviously, behind these men doing battle, there would have been the wives. What happened to both of the wives as a result of the conflict? Well, we've got essentially three wives, just to pick from here, in that you've got... Harold's wife, who we talked about already, where we don't really know that much about what happened to her or indeed them after the battle. But we've got these two other queens who do remain actually quite influential. One of those is yet another Edith, the wife of Edward the Confessor, who was also the sister 
of Harold Godwinson. So you might expect in the aftermath of her brother's defeat and death that she would fade away into nothingness. She's obviously in a very vulnerable position. But actually, we see from the Doomsday Book that she's one of the very few English landowners who still has, if not all, a significant number of her lands at that point after the conquest. And she's able to maintain her position partly really through her ability to attach herself to her husband rather than her brother. And she actually is the patroness of a life of Edward, which presents him as a saint, and in doing so presents herself as the wife of a saint. So she's very much using the ability of women to be patrons of the arts, to be wives, to secure her own position, and in doing so secure her her future and fortune. And then on the other side, we've got William's wife, Matilda, who effectively ran Normandy for him during the campaign and in the aftermath. She didn't even come to England until a year after he became king and she was then crowned queen herself. But she goes back to Normandy and is again running that entire country on behalf of William's eldest son, who at this point is about 13, 14. So she's a woman who doesn't do the decorative aspect of medieval womanhood. She is very much a woman who gains a huge amount of authority as a result of the fact that her husband has taken over this whole new country. She is now ruling effectively for him, but practically in her own right. Interesting. Battle of Hastings, obviously, is one of the biggest turning points in English history. Do you think it's the biggest? It's hard to think of another single moment that has such a big impact in terms of culture, language, law, landholding, the actual individuals who are living and making decisions in the country it does have a massive impact. What's your view, Roy? I agree with that entirely. I mean, I think it is one of the pivotal moments. Now, the Battle of Hastings is part of the Norman Conquest. It isn't the whole of the Norman Conquest. There are other things happening which contribute to this. But Catherine's mentioned Doomsday Book. I mean, when you get to Doomsday, there are no English earls. There's only one English bishop of the, I think, a thousand or so tenants-in-chief. In other words, the people who hold land directly from the king only 13 of them are English. In the next level of society beneath that, the subtenants, only around 10% of them are English, as listed in in Doomsday. There's a complete social revolution. There's reform of the church, which happens from an English heritage perspective. Castles become introduced to this country in a big way. And as Catherine just mentioned, you have the cultural changes which happen, you know, the, the fact that the English language emerges out of the Norman Conquest. You know, it's a bit facetious to say it, but no Norman Conquest, no William Shakespeare. I mean, it's as big as that. And one other thing we often forget about, another big social change, you often read, particularly in slightly older history books, about how, you know, the Normans and the English intermarried very quickly. And in historical terms, a new sense of national identity emerged very quickly. It's very clear at the beginning, there was real animosity between the Normans and the English. And I think that in part is colored by the fact that William comes to the throne through conquest. What an interesting hypothetical question it is to say, what would have been, what would have happened if William had been offered the crown by the English? How different would William's rule have been? How different would English history have been? And one group we really ought to mention are the women of England at this point. Because in that intermarrying of the English and the French, let's not pretend that there was a sudden blossoming of romance between the Norman invaders Mm -hmm. and the English women. To a certain extent, I'm sure what's being implied here is horrible exploitation, sexual violence, 
and that as ever in warfare this time, women are paying a very large price for what happened on the 14th of October 1066. Mm. Given all that, the vast change, everything that we take for granted today, including the way that we speak uh, and all the derivations in, in our language, etc., etc., why do you think the Battle of Hastings continues to capture people's imaginations? It captures people's imaginations for two reasons. One is that the change which occurs as a consequence is so profound in all sorts of ways. You know, the names of people change. They start adopting French names rather than English names. The language changes. The language of government changes. The shape of government ends up changing. You have a country which had had strong ties with Scandinavia suddenly being drawn very strongly into Francophone politics. The kings of England are dukes of Normandy. They're the European potentates. They start looking to the south rather than across the wider countries of Europe. All of that happens as a consequence of the Norman conquest. But the other thing, I think, which appeals to people's imagination is the fact that it could so easily have been different, given how closely fought this battle appears to have been, if Harold had survived that day and been able to have an orderly retreat and to appear the next day to continue fighting. Was William really going to be in a position to prolong a campaign? in 1066? The answer is no. So it could so easily have been different. And if it had been a different result on the day, then almost everything you you know about English history, British history, and therefore by extension, a lot of global history probably changes as a consequence. And how would you sum up the Battle of Hastings as as an event in English history uh, and the way it continues to capture people's imaginations, Catherine? I think that massive social change, the massive everything change afterwards has culturally, we start our history from 1066. There's sort of, there's the Romans who are not really like us. And then there's this sort of gap in the middle people tend to forget about. And then history starts in 1066. And of course it doesn't. There's a huge amount that does carry on consistently. But we as, as a country, at some point in centuries past have just decided that that is the moment when our history begins. And I think that gives the battle a particular significance to us still, even with the changes to the curriculum and things that mean the Anglo-Saxons are now being taught far more than they were. But also, I think it's the fact we've got such good information. We do have all these sources. And in particular, actually, I think the Bayeux Tapestry is really key here. It's the fact that we've got a really good pictorial source of the battle. It captures people's imaginations in a way that no amount of chronicle descriptions can. When people think of the Battle of Hastings, they think of that tapestry. They think of the people in it. They seem far more real than I think a lot of individuals in the past, certainly that early, do. And of course, if you want to see as real as possible beyond the tapestry, uh, you can obviously watch the reenactments that English Heritage puts on. Are you um, going to be watching that yourselves? Probably, yeah, I should think so. It's always good fun. Who's going to win? That's the question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Apparently there have been some complaints about that in the past. The Anglo-Saxons get a bit fed up of losing all the time. Right, okay. Well, I think we know how it is going to end. And um, for the very many reasons that you've both outlined so clearly and scholarly. So thank you very much for your very comprehensive assessment of the Battle of Hastings. I think um, this will be very useful to uh, any school children or, or, or whatever who are studying it. So thank you. Thank you. You're welcome.
you've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll find out how a new exhibition at Brodsworth Hall and Gardens in South Yorkshire seeks to address the site's connection to the transatlantic slave trade. The project's called Liberty and Lottery. We're working with significant contemporary artists and an international research team to produce a thoughtful, balanced response to the story. Thanks for listening. See you next time.